Welcome to the 11th hour lecture series. How's the volume? In the back, is it good? All right. Uh, so today we have a wonderful presentation by Tim Bascom. Uh, and I'm going to just run through the rest of the week's stuff so that you have an idea of what's coming up. Uh, and then I'll introduce Tim, and then you are in for a world of pleasure and enlightenment. All right, so um, tomorrow at uh, 11 o'clock we have Sarah Safian writing, uh, speaking about the politics of writing about loved ones. So a memoir-related topic, nonfiction-related topic tomorrow at 11. And you can find the descriptions in your packet. Uh, Wednesday, June 12th, is the IC Music Festival collaboration with uh, one of our writers, Robert Fernandez. He'll lead a discussion concerning um, I believe it is Schumann and Tchaikovsky. Uh, and he'll be talking with soprano Megan Bruce and pianist Connor Hannock. And uh, they'll talk and also play pieces from the larger performance that they're going to do on Friday. So this one's going to be great. The thing about Wednesday is that it's in the old Capitol Mall in the recital hall in there. So it, all the other 11th hours are right here in this room, and you are in the exact right place for it. But Wednesdays, it'll still be at 11 o'clock, but we're going to be in a recital hall since the musicians will also be playing. And it's, uh, it's a very beautiful recital hall, so come and see that. And then on Thursday, June 13th, Juliet Patterson and B.K. Lauren will be talking about poetry as foundation of fiction and nonfiction. So for all you prose writers who don't quite know what to do with or about poetry, um, do come. And for you poets, uh, come and also it'll be a kind of cross genre, let's talk to each other about this sort of event. And then Friday, right here in this room, all of your beloved faculty will be putting their wares on display and reading their brilliant work for you. Um, so you get to hear you know, from all the different faculty. So that's on Friday right here in this room. OK. So I'm just going to briefly read the description of Tim's talk for you so that you're set up for what's ahead, and then um, give a little bio for Tim. OK. Sudden Riches, the surprising and satisfying role of research in the personal essay. In this 11th hour, Tim Bascom will discuss the personal essay in order to demonstrate the ways in which this form, typically focused on autobiographical events, can be driven by research instead. Genre-shaping essayists such as Joan Didion, Annie Dillard, David Foster Wallace, and Eula Biss, who I love completely, and we had a talk by her one year, have demonstrated uh, that what we call personal is not limited to what we remember internally. Uh, Tim will show us how sometimes we have to go outside the self and explore our way toward unexpected discoveries, arriving at even more rich realities that would have eluded us if we turned inward. He'll provide examples of the ways that research can be conducted and integrated into a personal essay, lifting it to a vivid and universally engaging level. I'm extremely excited about this talk. Uh, Tim Bascom's memoir, Chameleon Days, An American Boyhead in Ethiopia, won the Bakeless Literary Prize and was published by Houghton Mifflin. His essays have been published in Boulevard, Fourth Genre, Image, The Christian Science Monitor, and the in-flight magazine of China Airlines. I have to pause there. They were supposed to be worming their way back up that direction. Okay, people slide together and share, and then pass them back. Find a, find a friend to sit next to who has a handout. Yeah, so that they get all the way back. A lot of it will be on the overhead too. But find a friend. This is the friend making eleventh hour. Okay. Um, I'm pausing on the China Airlines in-flight magazine part to say that I have ridden on China Airlines and to have anything of comfort in that event would be amazing. So <laughs> you've done a service to all China Airlines uh, flyers. Um, his work has also been selected for the anthology's Best American Travel Writing and Best Creative Nonfiction. Uh, Bascom, who publishes fiction and poetry, has been teaching creative writing at the University of Missouri during this past year. And he received his MFA from right here, University of Iowa. Please welcome Timothy Bascom. All right. Hope you can hear me. Can you hear me okay? Good to be with you all. Thank you to Mary for the introduction. Um, I'm going to just jump in, and this is not on that packet that 
is going around. I'm just going to read something from a book by Amy Leach, who also went through the program here at the University of Iowa, and it's uh, called Things That Are, beautiful book. Begins this uh, way, one of her essays called Warbler Delight. I suppose that someday, suddenly, I will be transferred to another age, for example, the chivalric or the bronze. The hope is, of course, that I arrive in period dress, but not resemble a contemporary luminary, for I wish to simply onlook. But more probably, thanks to chronologically garbled garb, or my mistakable face, which will lead to expectations of competence, I will have to explain my occurrence. That explained, I will have to explain my age, the present, also known as the future, in the past. This is why I am studying our great inventions and advances to be ready for questions. First of all, it seems imperative to understand modern bird migration. For birds used to fly to the moon in September and then back in spring. Now, why birds wintered on the moon is a good question, but this is what people realized was happening when they saw swallows flying toward the silvery globe. Birds nowadays usually just go to Brazil or Morocco for the winter. Thus, I hope to be useful to the exhausted birds of the past by explaining how their posterity succeeds with much abbreviated trips. One little bird, however, performs a migratory feat reminiscent of birds wintering on the moon days. Starting out from Alaska, the black pole warbler flies 3,000 miles east to Nova Scotia. There, he gorges himself on webworms and sawflies and gets fat while waiting for a strong northwest wind to blow him off his twig out over the Atlantic Ocean. Thus begins his 2,000-mile transoceanic flight to Venezuela. But fat is a gross word for a trifle-sized bird, a four-inch long sprite, knit of feathers, hollow bones, and heart. Warblers are not beefy like geese. A goose on your head gets irksome, <laughs> compressing your neck. But a warbler could spend the week there undetected, like a cherry or a shilling. Even with their enormous hearts, warblers weigh one-third of an ounce, which means 48 warblers to the pound. <laughs> so that's how Amy begins her essay. It's quirky. I could see some of you kind of like, what are we doing here? It's kind of... Um, out of its period, because she, she's like a Victorian person who got stuck in our era, and she speaks in that, you know, dear reader sort of voice that we're not accustomed to now. That's personal, because this is her personal take on things, her point of view, and yet this is a very heavily researched piece, right? We do hear the pronoun I, but what I think you're conscious of is these unusual facts that you didn't know, right? That this warbler only weighs, uh, what is it? Um, Somebody help me. That one third of an ounce, and that we could get 48 of them to a pound, right? And uh, we learned that it does this 2,000 mile journey. Um, we learned uh, that at some time earlier, people were confused because they would see these birds that looked like they were flying at night towards the moon and thought they were actually migrating to the moon. We're learning all this stuff we didn't know. And it's all heavily researched, and yet it feels personal in its own unique way, right? Well, shift up, and this is Joanne Beard, who actually also spent time here at University of Iowa and wrote an essay that is in many, many anthologies now called The Fourth State of Matter about a terrible incident that occurred with a young uh, PhD student in the sciences who shot um, three or four, maybe five different people here on campus just suddenly, and she happened to be working in that building uh, as a, an assistant editor at the time. This is how she begins her essay called The Fourth State of Matter. The collie wakes me up about three times a night, summoning me from a great distance as I row my boat through a dim, complicated dream. She's on the shoreline barking, wake up! 
She's staring at me with her head slightly tipped to the side, long nose, gazing eyes, toenails clenched to get a purchase on the wood floor. We used to call her the face of love. She totters on her broomstick legs into the hallway and over the door sill into the kitchen, makes a sharp left at the refrigerator, careful, almost went down, then a straightaway to the door. I sleep on my feet in the cold of the doorway, waiting. Here she comes, lift her down the two steps, she pees and then stands, lassie in a ratty coat, gazing out at the yard. In the porch light, the trees shiver, the squirrels turn over in their sleep. The Milky Way is a long smear on the sky, like something erased on a chalkboard. Over the neighbor's house, Mars flashes white, then red, then white again. Jupiter is hidden among the anonymous blinks and glitterings. It has a moon with sulfur-spewing volcanoes and a beautiful name, Io. I learned it at work from the group of men who surround me there, space physicists, guys who spend days on end with their heads poked through the fabric of the sky, listening to the sounds of the universe, guys whose own lives are ticking like the alarm clocks getting ready to go off, although none of us is aware of it yet. That's how she launches her piece, and you can feel the difference in that it is very narrative-driven, and it isn't, uh, it's very experiential. It's, this is me in my space going through my experience, as opposed to Amy, who's had to, uh, I, I mean, I doubt she's flown along with those warblers on their journey. Um, she's had to learn this out of books and out of discussions with other people. And those are, I think, two very different poles that essays are uh, likely to lean towards. They're not always going to go one way or the other. They might be right in the middle. But those are two poles that are possible. So we've got some essays that are self-referential. Did I lose you? Are you still hearing me? Yeah. And they're narrative-oriented. And they tend to be experience-based. On the other end of this spectrum, we've got some that are outward-focused. They're topically-oriented. And they're conceptual, or more so. Obviously, the essays that lean towards poll two are going to be more reliant on research. Nature writing, like Amy Leach's piece on these, these warblers, tends to lean this direction. Annie Dillard is a you know, well-known author who does terrific nature writing. Um, and she weaves her research in so deftly, we hardly know it is research. So I thought I would show you a piece here uh, that is in that packet that went around. This is from Living Like Weasels. And we start up here. A weasel is wild. Who knows what he thinks? He sleeps in his underground den, his tail draped over his nose. Sometimes he lives in his den for two days without leaving. Outside he stalks rabbits, mice, muskrats, and birds, killing more bodies than he can eat warm and often dragging the carcasses home. Obedient to instinct, he bites his prey at the neck, either splitting the jugular vein at the throat or crunching the brain at the base of the skull, and he does not let go. One naturalist refused to kill a weasel who was socketed into his hand deeply as a rattlesnake. The man could in no way pry the tiny weasel off, and he had to walk half a mile to water, the weasel dangling from his palm and soak him off like a stubborn label. <laughs> and once, says Ernest Thompson Seton, once a man shot an eagle out of the sky. He examined the eagle and found the dry skull of a weasel fixed by the jaws to his throat. <laughs> The supposition is that the eagle had pounced on the weasel, and the weasel swiveled and bit as instinct taught him tooth to neck and nearly won. I would like to have seen that eagle from the air a few weeks or months before he was shot. Was the whole weasel still attached to his feathered throat, a fur pendant, 
Or did the eagle eat what he could, could reach, gutting the living weasel with his talons before his breast, bending his beak, cleaning the beautiful airborne bones? I have been reading about weasels because I saw one last week. I startled a weasel who startled me, and we exchanged a long glance. So that's how she launches that chapter of her larger book, Pilgrim uh, at Tinker Creek. And um, I would just note that she shows us going down into the weasel's lair where these different animals have been caught and how they've been uh, killed. You know, the jugular split, the brain crushed at the skull, uh, the skull crushed right where it connects to the, the backbone. And these are things she's learned uh, from research, but she does it so subtly that we almost sense that we're with a weasel doing its killing, going down into its den, pulling these animals into it. Um, I also point out Edward Thomas Seton, who she loves, because I see he pops up in her other books like The Writing Life. And she's dug deep and found this beautiful incident of this, this eagle with a weasel skull stuck to its throat which has taken work to find. It's not hers, though. She didn't see it, right? And yet, we almost feel like she did. And I think part of the reason is that at the end of that little incident, she describes how she imagines what might have happened. Did the animal still hang from the eagle? Did he slowly eat it? Um, she's trying to imagine herself right into the, the uh, example that she has borrowed and taking that research and making it her own. And then the thing that I would point out finally is that it's only after that research portion at the beginning of the essay that she says, you know, the reason I've been doing all this reading is I saw a weasel. And that may have been a very short, it was a very short, brief encounter. She describes it more. But, you know, they just exchanged a glance. They just looked at each other for about a minute because neither they froze and they just... And they really saw each other for a little bit. And she describes that experience. But she doesn't have a lot of background on weasels, except through research. Right? Culture commentary also leans toward this more research-based uh, approach that we would see over here at poll number two. Right? Outward focus, topically oriented. And uh, Didion is somebody who's an important uh, exemplar in that kind of writing. Um, I'm going to shift up to something that you have also in your packet there. It's the beginning of her essay on Georgia O'Keeffe. This is how she launches what she's writing. Where I was born and where and how I have lived is unimportant. Georgia O'Keeffe told us in the book of paintings and words published in her 90th year on earth. She seemed to be advising us to forget the beautiful face in the Steiglitz photographs. She appeared to be dismissing the rather condescending romance that had attached to her by then, the romance of extreme good looks and advanced age and deliberate isolation. It is what I have done with where I have been that should be of interest. I recall an August afternoon in Chicago in 1973 when I took my daughter, then seven, to see what George O'Keefe had done with where she had been. One of the vast O'Keefe sky above cloud canvases floated over the back stairs in the Chicago Art Institute that day, dominating what seemed to be several stories of empty light. And my daughter looked at it once, ran to the landing, and kept on looking. Who drew it, she whispered after a while. I told her. I need to talk to her, she said, finally. So she gives us a personal anchor in this personal essay. We're talking about personal essays still. And that is this daughter in an art center looking at an actual painting, making a comment in response to it. And that's important to the personal feel of the piece. It happens to be a girl with her mother this is about women and their identity. But she uses research in the bulk of this essay, if you were to read the whole of it, to tease out a kind of topical concern for her. What is feminine artistic identity in the middle of what she calls the war of the sexes? What is that identity? So we have very important to the piece the quotation at the beginning that 
uh, I'll go back to. Where I was born and where and how I have lived is unimportant. She says, that's not who I am. Quit looking at the, the, the beautiful pictures of me taken by Steiglitz. Um, quit thinking about me in this romantic fashion with all of my flowers that she paints. I want you to think instead, not in that romantic sense, but what I have done with where I have been. And Didion goes on to say she was a hard woman and that hardness was not easily received at that time in the culture from a woman. And so by the end of uh, that page that you have, you'll see a part that I marked here that just gives us again how research reinforces what she's pursuing. The research is what the piece is about. It is giving her focus and direction. This is a woman who could early on dismiss most of her contemporaries as dreamy and would later single out one she liked as a very poor painter and then add, apparently by way of softening the judgment, I guess he wasn't a painter at all. He had no courage and I believe that to create one's own world in any of the arts takes courage. This is a woman who in 1939 could advise her admirers that they were missing her point, that their appreciation of her famous flowers was merely sentimental. When I paint a red hill, she observed coolly in the catalog for an exhibition that year, you say it is too bad that I don't always paint flowers. A flower touches almost everyone's heart. A red hill doesn't touch everyone's heart. So she pushes back, and her identity is coming through in these quotes, and we're being asked still to consider what is that feminine artistic identity that she's uh, exampling for us. Eula Biss, another interesting case in point, more current. She has a book called uh, Notes from No Man's Land that I highly recommend. Um, and her cultural commentary relies almost entirely on research at times. So let's take a look at how she starts an essay with snatches of researched info. This is what we would call a lyric essay and makes a lot of leaps um, like a poem does and asks you to take these layers and start making a kind of sense out of it. We start, this is called Time and Distance Overcome. And we start with of what use is such an invention? The New York, New York World asked shortly after Alexander Graham Bell first demonstrated his telephone in 1876. The world was not waiting for the telephone. <laughs> Bell's financial backers asked him not to work on his new invention because it seemed too dubious an investment. The idea on which the telephone depended, the idea that every home in the country could be connected by a vast network of wires suspended from poles set an average of 100 feet apart seemed far more unlikely than the idea that the human voice could be transmitted through a wire. Even now, it is an impossible idea that we are all connected, all of us. At the present time, we have a perfect network of gas pipes and water pipes throughout our large cities, Bell wrote to his business partners in defense of his idea. We have main pipes laid under this laid under the streets, communicating by side pipes with the various dwellings. In a similar manner, it is conceivable that cables of telephone wires could be laid underground or suspended overhead, communicating by branch wires with private dwellings, counting houses, shops, manufactories, etc., uniting them through the main cable. Imagine the mind that could imagine this, that, that could see us joined by one branching cable this was the mind of a man who wanted to invent more than the telephone, a machine that would allow the deaf to hear. For a short time, the telephone was little more than a novelty. For 25 cents, you could see it demonstrated by Bell himself in a church, along with singing and recitations by local talent. From some distance away, Bell would receive a call from the invisible Mr. Watson. Then the telephone became a plaything of the rich. A Boston banker paid for a private line between his office and his home so that he could let his family know exactly when he'd be home for dinner. Mark Twain was among the first Americans to own a telephone, but he wasn't completely taken with the device. The human voice carries entirely too far as it is. Here 
1889, the New York Times was reporting a war on telephone poles. Wherever telephone companies were erecting poles, homeowners and business owners were sawing them down or defending their sidewalks with rifles. Now, isn't this just fun? Part of the, 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 what you get with research is we just learn stuff, and we like to learn. Um, so the essay has that capacity to educate us. And you can tell that Eula has done some terrific work to come up with all of this information, right? But she is stringing it together, somewhat like the lines that she's giving us here, these going to different telephones. She's stringing it together with a very purposeful sense of what she's up to. And it is only after you have gotten further into the piece that it suddenly takes a very sinister turn. One that you would not have anticipated, and that's the brilliance of this lyric essay. I'll read to you, I don't have it there in your packet, but what you're going to suddenly arrive at in the piece. In 1898, in Lake Cormorant, Mississippi, a black man was hanged from a telephone pole. And in Weir City, Kansas, and in Brookhaven, Mississippi, and in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the hanged man was riddled with bullets, in Danville, Illinois, a black man's throat was slit, and his dead body was strung up on a telephone pole. Two black men were hanged from a telephone pole in Lewisburg, West Virginia, and two in Hempstead, Texas, where one man was dragged out of the courtroom by a mob, and another was dragged out of jail. A black man was hanged from a telephone pole in Belleville, Illinois, where a fire was set at the base of the pole, and the man was cut down half alive, covered in coal oil, and burned. While his body was burning, the mob beat it with clubs and cut it to pieces. So suddenly we have this startling shift. Here we were talking about the poles representing connection, telephones, people talking to each other, the whole world connected with this vision that Alexander Graham Bell had. And the next thing we know, we got the telephone pole, symbol of complete division between one group of people and another. And she just works that and gives us more and more of that evidence, that terrible, terrible material to think about in relationship to that pole. It's all research. Where is she? But she's very much there in the purposeful sense that she's trying to figure something out. And she's using the research itself as a kind of purposeful direction um, that will or a, almost a questing, a question that she's trying to answer through the research. And that is a sense of her personality at the back of this personal essay. What does all this research do for the essay? It satisfies critics, some of whom insist that essays like memoirs, because so many of them are narrative-driven and self-referential, are too solipsistic. They're too much about the self looking at the belly button. It creates a sense of veracity. Dillard's weasel going down into his den. We know what kind of animals it eats. We know that it drags the animal down, how it kills it. That's veracity. We, we have a sense that's what a weasel does, right? It offers the reader the pleasure of acquiring new knowledge. I didn't know that about those telephone poles at the beginning of Biss's piece. It gives readers cultural reference points that they can connect to. Something that pulls us in because, oh, Alexander Graham Bell, yeah, he was the guy who invented the telephone. Interesting. I didn't know that about him. I didn't know that he was trying to help people who couldn't hear and that that was his real purpose. Or Steiglitz's photo um, comes up just briefly, but some of you might have seen it. It's not one. There are dozens of them because he was very much in love with her. But there is George O'Keefe in her youth. And so you might have seen some of Steiglitz's photos. And that is a kind of cultural currency that makes you able to come into the essay when we get these kind of references. It provides a kind of conceptual plot sometimes, a mental quest. So uh, we get Didion. Um, she says, actually, that the nonfiction writer uses research to arrive at discovery. So there's a kind of quest right through the research itself. And in this case of George O'Keefe, 
uh, readers are following along to see, um, well, what is the route for a woman artist, particularly at that time that she was writing about? It can also provide a kind of central metaphoric meaning. That's interesting to me, particularly with Dillard, who seems so deft with symbols. When we get to the end of her essay about that weasel, I hope I can find what I need here, just a minute. finding it. But what we're going to get is her describing, and this is a very poor paraphrase, uh, imagining that eagle again with the skull attached to its throat flying and saying that we could benefit from the same fierce determination of the weasel that would not let go of the throat of the eagle, even if it meant lifting up into the sky and floating under that bird and slowly deteriorating and the flesh dropping off and the bones themselves. Um, she's saying that animal instinct could be ours and in some ideal sense we could benefit from it. So she returns to it in a metaphoric sense at the end of the essay and the research provided the heart of the whole piece. You see what I'm saying in terms of that? And finally, uh, research can take what is personal and very uh, limited by that and turn it into something that's not particular but very universal. So bringing the research in, uh, like with BIS, um, takes that telephone pole and uh, makes us have to think about some really large social issues. Uh, in her case, she doesn't even give us a personal reference to the telephone pole until the very end of the essay. And in this case, I think I can find what I need. This is how she ends the essay. I, I find it very intriguing that we get here at the very end, only briefly. My grandfather was a lineman. He broke his back when a telephone pole fell. Smashed him onto the road, my father says. When I was young, I believed that the arc and swoop of telephone wires along the roadways was beautiful. I believed that the telephone poles with their transformers catching the evening sun were glorious. I believed my father when he said, my dad could raise a pole by himself. And I believed that the telephone itself was a miracle. Now I tell my sister, these poles, these wires do not look the same to me. Nothing is innocent, my sister reminds me, but nothing, I would like to think, remains unrepentant. One summer, heavy rains fell in Nebraska, and some green telephone poles grew small, leafy branches. Another tiny touch of research right at the very end of the piece being used in such a powerful way. But she hasn't given us the personal until the very end of this piece. And look at how we look at her experience of telephone poles because of everything she already showed us earlier. It suddenly takes what is very personal and makes it very universal and large, important. OK, I've been talking this whole time about essays that lean towards this outward focus, topically oriented, conceptual approach. And we haven't even hardly looked at this poll that's more self-referential, narrative-oriented, experience-based. But I'm interested in the fact that also, over here, even when it leans this direction, research can be very helpful. And I just think demonstrating on this side helps to think about, well, you know, maybe we could be doing more of it over here in the narrative. So um, Joanne Beard. She, uh, I think you'll have in your packet a page from her piece, The Fourth State of Matter. And you might flip to that if you've got it. I'll put it up here on the screen. What looked originally like a very uh, research light piece, and is, does have some research in it. So when we get into the middle of this narrative that seems so much about her struggle as an individual, not just with this sudden traumatic loss of close colleagues, but with a husband who is divorcing her, with a dog that's dying, 
all so personal, um, she also brings in some outside perspective that she couldn't have known. Look there at the paragraph that begins, one room over at a desk, Gong Lu works on a letter to his sister in China. The study of physics is more and more disappointing, he tells her. Modern physics is self-delusion, and all my life I have been honest and straightforward, and I have most of all detested cunning, fawning sycophants, dishonest bureaucrats who think they are always right in everything. Delicate Chinese characters all over a page. She was a kind and gentle sister, and he thanks her for that. He's going to kill himself. You yourself should not be too sad about it, for at least I have found a few traveling companions to accompany me to the grave. That couldn't have been known except through some sort of research to find out what he was doing prior to the incident. And she just weaves it right into her narrative. Or if you flip to the next page, um, we get well, start at the bottom of that same page, I'm sorry, um, where we have the space break. Friday afternoon seminar. Everyone is glazed over, listening as someone explains something unexplainable at the head of the long table. Gong Lu stands up, leaves the room abruptly, goes down one floor to see if the chairman, Dwight, is sitting in his office. He is. The door is open. Gong Lu turns and walks back up the stairs and enters the meeting room again. Chris Gertz is sitting near the door and takes the first bullet in the back of the head. There is a loud popping sound and then blue smoke. Sean gets the second bullet in the forehead. The lenses of his glasses shatter. More smoke and the room rings with the popping. Bob Smith tries to crawl beneath the table. Gong Lu takes two steps, holds his arms straight out and levels the gun with both hands. Bob looks up, the third bullet in the right hand, the fourth in the chest, smoke, elbows and legs, people trying to get out of the way, then out of the room. Gong Lu walks quickly down the stairs, dispelling spent cartridges and loading new ones. This is all from news reports or maybe some kind of criminal records that she's looked at. She admits that she does a lot of, uh, takes liberties with trying to recreate situations, but I know that she would have looked up and found everything she could about who got hit where by these bullets, where the cartridges were found in the hallway, and by doing that is creating a very uh, true-to-situation um, account of what happened on that day where she wasn't even in the room, um, was at her house in a kind of funk. That's narrative, but it's being enhanced by research. Marcel Proust is uh, often referred to when it comes to memory and the memoir. And Proust, in his book, Things, uh, Remembrance of Things Past, has this iconic experience that often is brought up in scholarship where uh, he's gone to his childhood home, he takes this cookie called a madeleine, dips it into tea, and suddenly it all comes back. Um, and he calls this involuntary memory. He didn't, it wasn't voluntarily called up, it just happened to ha come to him. And suddenly there's this stream of consciousness that becomes uh, the whole book, really, in some sense. And there's kind of a miraculous feel to it. And people talk about how important that is to the memoir and to narrative-driven essay. But I'm going to push back a bit, and I'm going to suggest that we are not as fully equipped as we wish we were in this kind of self-reliant sense. So I'll read to you just briefly something I've been working on as an essay. Proust argues that an authentic personal story springs forth involuntarily, not voluntarily, and he demonstrates that near supernatural dynamic with a sudden stream of consciousness that came undammed after he had tasted a familiar cookie from his childhood. The cookie was a prompt of sorts, but everything he needed lay inside, pre-recorded, ready for recall, and it suddenly spilled forth. Fascinating. Yet how true to the actual process? I would argue that Proust's iconic description of recollection is misleading, suggesting a godlike recall that will, when taken as a model for writing, turn out to be a mirage. Basically, we are not informed enough to depend solely on our fractured and dimming databases. Yes, we would like to think we are that self-sufficient. We would like to believe we transcend the very need for outside references. Wouldn't that be convenient as writers, right? 
Um, after all, every setting and dialogue and event should be, theoretically speaking, right there in the mind, ready to download in panoramic technicolor. But let me ask, how true is that to your actual experience? Think for a minute, if you don't mind, of some key event from your childhood, some moment that is emotionally hot, therefore significant. This is an important moment. What is that moment? Can you think of one? Got something that's coming to you? A moment that was a key moment from your childhood, early in life. It stuck with you because it made a difference in who you were, how you saw the world. Now, try to visualize it and recall from all five senses. What, what do you come up with? What do you see? What do you smell? What do you hear in that moment? How far do you get? You know, I'm not giving you enough time to do this, but how far do you get with that list of things from that moment? In my case, I'll choose a moment in the kitchen of my boyhood home when I apparently smirked too sarcastically at my mother because it resulted in her slapping me across the face. The only time, by the way, that she ever slapped me. I remember the slap, plain and simple, but I can't remember what I might have said to cause this reaction because maybe there was something that it wasn't maybe just the smirk because that seems awfully slight. I do remember smirking. I remember that was there. I think that may have pushed the button. But was I talking to her? I can't remember what she said afterward in reaction. Because she probably did, or maybe she apologized. I don't know. I can't remember what she was wearing. But if I'm writing about her, she can't be naked. I've got to get her dressed. <laughs> I don't know what smells were in the kitchen at that point. I don't recall whether I was there to scavenge for a snack or whether she'd call me into the kitchen to do some sort of chore like emptying the trash. Was that the smirk? And of course, I have no idea what was going on inside of her head, perhaps adding some kind of stress that I don't know about. What if, however, I go back to a family photo album and I find pictures of the same kitchen in the mid-70s noticing a box of Hostess Ding Dongs on the Formica table top? And it brings back the musty chocolate odor that emerged from those unwrapped tinfoil packages. You remember when you pull those out? Did any of you eat Hostess Ding Dongs? No? Some of you are? Okay. And maybe it brings back my pre-adolescent craving for such snacks and TV and uninterrupted leisure. Hence the, hence the smirk. What if I Google some dress designs from the same era and see one that reminds me of my mother wearing something that had a chain-like design of golden ovals against an avocado green background, calling to mind her ever-patient smile, the way she typically tried so hard to please the men in her life, which was three boys and a husband, no daughter in sight. <laughs> What if I even call my mother and ask her, what made her take that face-slapping action? Does she have any sense? Does she even remember it? What was going on in her life on that day, if she can recall? Now, this is very personal inquiry, but it is a form of research, right? And that involves outside references going against the notion of this self-sufficient, self-enclosed mind. It is not involuntary either, like Proust's cookie-inspired stream of consciousness. Instead, it is quite intentional, and it's workmanlike. However, it may, just like the cookie, unlock new, vivid impressions, leading the mind in a useful new direction. Which makes me reconsider whether, in fact, Proust's cookie was itself a kind of research. Maybe that's the point. Maybe our memory is dependent on outside references to jar it into action. Maybe it finds direction from such outside stimulus. There's a book by Julia Watson and Sidoni Smith, which is about reading autobiography. And in it, they argue that memory is always contextual. So we remember, they say, in quote, in particular sites, or circumstances, in particular sites or circumstances. And this kind of memory can be then triggered by returning to that site or circumstance, like putting a cookie into tea, or by looking at a photo in a photo album that reminds us of that situation. 
um, reading the document from the time, as one author does, uh, looking at documents in England um, from the time period she was in, so that it calls up how her family situation relates to the big family of England and what it was going through at that time. Dillard does a great job of this in all of her work, I think. And I would just say, reader, read Dillard. You'll get, you'll get what to do. Um, but in a book called Inventing the Truth, she talks about writing her memoir, An American Childhood. And this is where you see how going back to a particular site and uh, situation jars things alive for her again. If you had the notion back then that everything was interesting if you just learned enough, I, I had the notion back then that everything was interesting if you just learned enough about it. Now, writing about it, I have the pleasure of learning it all again and finding that it is interesting. I get to inform myself and any readers about such esoterica as rock collecting, which I hadn't thought about in almost 30 years. When I was 12, a paper boy gave me two grocery bags full of rock and mineral chunks. It took me most of a year to identify them. At a museum shop, I bought cards of what they called thumbnail specimens, and I read books about a fairly absurd batch of people who called themselves rock hounds. They spent their evenings in the basement sawing up slabs of travertine into wavy slices suitable, they said, for wall hangings. Now, in this memoir that is an American childhood, I get to recall where the romance of rock collecting had lain the symbolic sense that underneath the dreary highways, underneath Pittsburgh, were canyons of crystals, that you could find treasure by prying open the landscape. In my reading, I learned that people have cracked knobs of granite and laid bare clusters of red garnets and topaz crystals, chrysoberyl, sputumenon, and emerald. They held in their hands crystals that had hung in a hole in the dark for a billion years, unseen. I liked the idea of that. I would lay about me right and left with a hammer and bash the landscape to bits. I would crack the Earth's crust like a pinata and spread its vivid prizes in chunks to the light. That's what I wanted to do. So I put that in. But you can see her going back to what she had researched as a child and re-researching it. I'm sure that she had to look up some of those words that I couldn't even pronounce so that she could again give the veracity of rock collecting through those words of certain kind of stones. And notice that it's about contextual memory. All of it calls up Pittsburgh and underneath it these treasures that are like the research nuggets she's always after in her reading as well as the rock hound stuff. Let's get down there, dig under, find what we can. So for me that has been the big challenge. I was going to read you a snippet of what I'm working on and how research came into it, but I don't know that I have time for that since we're now near the end. And I think instead what I'll do is just shift up and let people jump in, because you may have things that you want to add that you've thought about um, with regards to research. Feel free to do that. Or if you have something that you would like to ask as well, and I'll do what I can to respond. Yeah? She, she's going to give you a mic there. What if you're writing an essay or memoir about someone you don't know and you don't want to revert to scholarly uh, dissertations on that person? How do you how do you humanize that experience? Everyone needs to know that I know your situation. Yes. To realize uh, that you're looking at somebody rather famous, Susan Glassville, right? And uh, your own connection. And so maybe you don't want to tell the story the way it's been told. Is that the main reason you're saying? Yes, it's so academic. Because it's so academic. It's so academic. Well, I think you have to claim what you do find and somehow make it more yours so that it becomes delivered uh, in your voice. And uh, your, your direct experience and your familial experience with Susan Glassville through your ancestors um, would be, uh, should trump the other research. But I still would say that you need to go and do the academic research and find what you can and then borrow out of it. Uh, that would be my argument. It would be easier if she'd been a rock. <laughs> if she'd been a rock. <laughs> yeah. 
Other questions? I also am a great fan of Annie Dillard's. But I, when I read her pieces, especially her essays, I have always thought of them as extended metaphors. And thought, oh God, if I could just do this. Um, I'm thinking, I wrote her head right before I came, the one about uh, how writing the writer's life, I think it's called. And in that essay, she's talking about chopping wood and being out in this isolated cabin and trying to chop the wood and not being successful. And at the end, she realizes that to chop the wood, you have to forget about the wood and strike through the cutting block. And that is also the way you have to write. And so I, I, I'm wondering if this, this research that's coming in here is a way that she tries to extend that metaphor about how what you have to do to write, or I'm, I'm wondering. I don't even know how to phrase this question. I guess when we get right down to it, but if. She is doing this research to build a metaphor. The two are very closely tied with her. That was what I was noticing as I was doing my research for this talk, is that she, more than the others, would take something that she found like that, see an example of the eagle and the weasel school, and turn it metaphoric, or, or, or maybe say symbolic, that uh, she wants to use what she finds in a symbolic, meaningful fashion. Um, and that may have something to do with even when you're talking about the academic research, that what you get shouldn't just be particulars, but particulars that might somehow uh, magnify something that needs to be understood um, and thinking in that more symbolic fashion about what is being found. And you're right, you get in a blizzard of detail and some of it we just don't care about. And some people don't like reading Gilbert. I'll admit it, and sometimes I struggle with her because it's such, there's so much detail coming at me since that is her forte. But I think the reason that she's so powerful for so many readers is that she does do what you're describing, this kind of metaphoric use of what she discovers, so that it's very meaningful. It's not just data. Somebody up here, I had a question. It's kind of a comment, I, and this has been up for a long time, and I actually was across the street when this was happening, yeah. and, and so a little bit after. Um, but anyway, the, the, you know, the point of this is that we were immersed in this stuff at the time. Um, you know, every issue of the Des Moines Register, every issue of the Daily Iowan for days afterward would have more details about what happened and so on and so forth. And what I'm thinking about, and, and actually, it, it, it's sort of with Amy Dillard, too. I mean, I saw three river otters um, last year huh. and um, out on the northeast side of town. And you know, I spent the last week, or the next week, reading about river otters in Iowa. And there's river otters in each of the 99 counties of Iowa. Who knew? Um, and, and the point is that, that some of the things that we're calling research here is not going out and finding things to put in an essay, but they're part of the experiential going soup in which we yeah. exist. And you know, I've always thought of Annie Dillard as a big reader. Um, and if she sees a weasel, she goes reads about weasels. Yeah. And, and I'm glad to see that, because I'm like that too. I think most people are. And the same is here. I mean, what, I don't know where this fits in what she's doing in this essay, but it gives a, a sense to me, or, or it returns to me, a, a sense of the oppressive detail to which people were devoted to recreating the events, horrible as they were, and how you could not get away from them. Yeah. And you know, so that's the impression of just those. And and you know, so that the her purpose is not to to recreate so much the factual matter as we would if we were researching this for say a legal brief, uh -huh. um, but to 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 recreate a sense of being crushed down by all this information. Um, so that turned out to be a statement and not a, uh, a question. I apologize. Do you have a response? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're right. It's an academic move.
sorry. <laughs> You're right. A lot of uh, what I would call research in this situation is stuff that we go back to uh, clarify as well as we can. Um, she would have experienced it as part of that whole time. Yeah. But my hunch is she had to go back and look at those accounts again to really nail it down. And I also like to bring up about Annie Dillard. I mean, she spent hours at night in a little study carol in a library and loved to just disappear into it and said that, you know, if you spend a day reading, um, that's not remarkable. Um, but if you spend a life reading, that's pretty good. Um, and that's kind of the way that she operates. So it's part of her being. Um, what you're, I think you're saying kind of is the research is an extension of who she is in her case. And I would, that's probably true of you with this as well, and Joan Didion and some of the others who lean that way. Yeah. Um, this may be a, a newbie sort of naive question, but um, what's your opinion about the consistency of these polls? You know, in terms of, uh, there's a whole range in between. Oh, right. Within, yeah. one, within one piece, is there a consistency that is beneficial for the audience in terms of the impact on the and everybody internalizes writing differently, of course. But in general, is it um, should you hold a self-referential perspective, an Arab-oriented perspective, or can you mix the ingredients? And is it is it possible on the other side to overspice a piece by going back and forth to forget? You're right that uh, there's a lot, a lot happening in here, and a lot of essays I think are here. And I tried to give you extremes right from the start intentionally, so that you could see how different the polls were that were possible. And I think that writing uh, emerges out of who you are, like we were just saying with Annie Dillard, and your proclivities as a person will make you lean one direction or the other. I don't think it's an intentional act so much, though some writers are capable of saying, well, I'm going to write one more over here. And I, I have always leaned this direction. And why I'm up here talking is because in, at this stage in my life, I'm getting more and more interested in this. I'm like, you know, this is kind of cool, you know? So we change over time, and, and I'm finding I want to do more of this. Um, and some of that's like a stage in life thing, I think. There's no right or wrong in it. It will make some writer, it will make some readers want to read you and others not. Especially if you're on one of the extreme sides of it. Honestly, when I was reading Amy Leach, you all looked blank, some of you, at the beginning. And so I'm wondering, you know, well, something wasn't quite clicking, and that was intriguing to me. Um, uh, and she leans, she has an extreme voice in some way. Yeah, you use the example of Proust and um, memory and bring it to research and stuff. And I was thinking about how now we have so much um, information we can find out anything on our phone right away. Yeah. And how that affects writing and what we read and um, Versus things that, like the dictionary, we haven't had a dictionary for really that long. Um, and how do you think it might change writing maybe for the worse, maybe things you have to be careful of, things that might be lost by having too much information, be able to do so much research and keep that in every little fabulous more. I think that's a hazard that's there, you're right. Um, for the most part, I've been enjoying that I can quickly access things as I'm writing. I think uh, one way to avoid that uh, data dump problem is not to be dependent on the research uh, right from the outset in a kind of, you get too caught up in the trees, not the forest. And to write from what you know primarily is my tendency when I'm writing an essay, and then to come back and add uh, what I think needs to be added for more precision or more impact through research. I don't always, somebody else in my account's completely different, because uh, I know some people who read for a year and then write. Um, 
I'm reading all of that some, but I will go back to find the detailed stuff that I want to draw. Um, I've not read much of this. I noticed in all the examples uh, that you've read that uh, it never seemed like there was an academic trope, like here's the personal thing I'm chatting about, now I'll plop in this information as if it was distanced from the writer. I never had a sense that the detail was distanced from the voice that, that you were reading. Yeah. Is that a fair thing to say about research and essays? Yeah. The, uh, the personal essay, as opposed to the scholarly essay, uh, we're going to be so entranced, hopefully, by the personal voice that is speaking to us that we don't feel that removal of the research from that entity who's speaking to us, that voice. And I think in scholarly work, sometimes we'll have more sense of that intentionally because we're after something we call objectivity, I think. Yeah, it's still kind of a slippery thing even in that form, I think. We're probably up to the time we need to... Yeah, I think, I think so. Um, this was, I think, and I know you guys think so too, such a fabulous talk. Thank you.